Correct here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Monadic Party is a five days long Haskell summer school in Poznan, Poland, taking place June 11th through 15th. They will have two tracks, one for programmers that aren't experienced in Haskell and would like to learn it from basic concepts, the other track for people already familiar with the language, and will present a selection of talks and workshops on a variety of topics. Their speakers include Julie Moranuki, who wrote Haskell Programming from First Principles, Chris Martin, co-author of an upcoming book, Joy of Haskell, a GHC contributor, Christoph Gugulewski, Carter Schoenwald, Marcin Semeldruski, and Michal Kavalitz. Check them out at monadic.party. The 2018 Racket Summer School will run July 9th through the 13th at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. The 2018 Racket Summer School will cover the following topics. The spectrum of programming languages, modules and syntax, or languages as libraries, Dr. Racket's support for language-oriented programming, domain-specific language for adding types to languages, tools and techniques for implementing notational conveniences, and research challenges in language-oriented programming. For more information and to apply, visit summer-school.racket-lang.org slash 2018. BusConf will take place for the second time from August 2nd to August 4th of 2018 in Germany, close to Frankfurt. BuzzConf is an open space style unconference where FP lovers of all languages come together to teach, learn, share, and have fun. Haskell, Scala, JavaScript, F-Sharp, Java, Swift, BuzzConf is language agnostic, low-cost, non-profit event with 48 hours of learning, teaching, discussions, and fun. For more information and register, visit www.bus-conf.org. Compose Melbourne will be taking place Monday, August 27th. Visit www.composeconference.org to keep updated as more details are announced. The International Conference on Functional Programming 2018 will be taking place September 23rd through the 29th in St. Louis, Missouri. ICAFP is an annual programming language conference. It is sponsored by the Association for Computing Machinery under the aegis of the ACM Special Interest Group on Programming Languages. SIGPEN. For more information, see the general ICFP website. And this year, ICFP is co-located with StrangeLoop. The StrangeLoop conference is coming up again this fall. StrangeLoop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 26th through the 28th of 2018 at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opens in early June 2018. Keep updated at com slash cfp.html. RacketCon will be taking place the 29th and 30th of September. This year, RacketCon will join the International Conference on Functional Programming and StrangeLoop for a week of programming revelry in St. Louis, Missouri at the Union Station Hotel. Specifically, they are in the Jeffersonian and Knickerbocker rooms. The 8th RacketCon is a meeting for everyone interested in Racket, a general-purpose programming language that's also the world's first ecosystem for developing and deploying new languages. RacketCon is for developers, contributors, programmers, educators, and bystanders. It's an opportunity for all of us to share plans, ideas, and enthusiasm and help shape the future of Racket. 
For more information and to register, visit con.racket-lane.org. The Big Elixir Conference will be on November 8th and 9th in New Orleans. Registration and CFP are now open. Their website is www.thebigelixir.com. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode EDs. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Sam Geyer and Caleb Hubley. Would you two mind introducing yourself? So my name is Sam Geyer. I am a faculty in computer science at Tufts University. I've been working in software and compilers for a number of years now. And just a few years ago, got interested in Arduinos and blinky lights and all that stuff, mainly for fun. And I built a bunch of projects just for my own amusement. And then Caleb approached me about working on programming problems. And that's kind of how we got started on the project we're going to talk about. And I'm Caleb Helblain. I currently work at a MIT research laboratory, but I graduated from Tufts University in 2016. And for my senior design project, I worked on Juniper, which is a functional reactive programming language for Arduino programming, which we're going to be talking about today. And yeah, I'm just interested in programming languages, programming language theory, and I hope to continue working in that field. Somehow Juniper came across the radar. I've been trying to remember exactly what put it on. And it may have just been a search for functional programming and Arduino kind of stuff and just seeing yeah. the occasional check out there because, as I was telling you a little bit, and I've had some other people on, been playing with Arduinos, finding a, a nice refresher kind of challenge of getting down to some of that hardware level and refreshing some of the C and C++ family of languages with the memory management and stuff, but there's also a little bit of like, I've been spoiled after playing with a bunch of higher level languages and playing with functional programming languages where I get to do some of this stuff and like even raise the abstraction level a little bit higher to some extent and came across it and saw functional reactive. So the reactive is interesting as well and dealing with that. And the F sharp is the language it's implemented based off the project page. Yep. And so sounded really interesting and because I've been playing with Raspberry Pis and the Arduinos and the Arduinos are great for the sensors and the Raspberry Pi is great for kind of that coordinator gateway. But I was like, is there something else that I could not have to do all this stuff? So I guess let's start with the background to Arduinos with each of you and how you first got picked up and disposed to playing with the hardware side from the software side. And then we'll evolve into the pain points of from just doing Arduinos as it stands today, for the most part, to where you're actually trying to move forward with? Yeah, I have worked more with the software development side, and Sam has worked more with the hardware development side. 
So Sam gave me one of his projects that he's worked on in the past for testing out my out the Juniper project. And that was the digital hourglass that we talked about in the paper. And I have a few smaller projects that I've worked on in the past, but Sam has done more with hardware stuff. Yeah, so I got introduced to Arduino and that whole world maybe about three years ago. Some people that I work with actually were doing a lot of fun projects on the side and showing me the kinds of things they were doing, mainly stuff with these RGB LED strips. So they've got, uh, you know, now these things are incredibly cheap, but you can buy these strips of LEDs. You can set any LED to any color you want. People make amazing things with these, you know, wearables, hats, decorations. Some people are like covering their whole house with these things. And so I thought, okay, I definitely want to do something with this. And I, I had some experience with building things, but I had basically never done hardware of any type. I had never like soldered anything. I didn't know like, when do you need a resistor or a capacitor or so I was really purely a software person starting from nothing. And I found it really enjoyable. I found it really interesting to get into the hardware side with totally new challenges, the debugging, right? This is, it's like, it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? I don't know. Here's my multimeter or, you know, there's smoke coming out of it. Why is that happening? Uh, <laughs> now it's, now it's garbage. I mean, that was, a, that was actually an amazing thing to me. It was like in software, if something is broken, you just make a new one. Or, you know, roll back using Git or something like that. When you burn out a piece of hardware, you have to throw it in the trash. <laughs> so that was kind of a revelation for me. But I think the interesting part that brought Caleb and I together was this realization that the programming, even though, you know, we're pretty experienced programmers, the programming is still really painful. So, you know, you know, it's all in C++ which is just about as painful as it could possibly be. Not at all accessible to the kinds of people you would want, people who are like artists and musicians and stuff like that. I mean, we're handing them C++. It's really kind of awful. But the flip side is that these devices are not very powerful. And, you know, your average Arduino has whatever, 2.5K of RAM. So, you know, there isn't a lot of room to do fancy stuff. and. Right now, if you want high performance and tight memory footprint, C++ is sort of the only game in town. So we approached it like that. We basically said, let's, how can we make the programming easier without breaking those assumptions? Because that's the world we're in. Yeah. And I actually have a little bit of hardware background. I was actually working on a computer engineering degree before I switched to computer science. So I took a microprocessor architecture class, which actually helped quite a bit. But like Sam was saying, the memory constraints with the Arduino are really the big problem with making the programs for it. Yeah, the Arduino had been interesting to me for a number of years now hearing about it. But it was also one of those things between my background as kind of, as you said, coming from the software, Sam, was yep. my real soldering experience was a cheap, cheap soldering iron and just soldering two wires together when the vacuum ran over it. And then putting some electrical tape on it. So it wasn't anything fancy. And before that was 12, 15 years ago, an undergrad, maybe even more, in the labs with the computer science lab. But it was the electrical engineering focus with the breadboards. 
And I've done C++, not necessarily want to be the language I would first pick up, but I was like, is there Rust? Is there some of this other stuff for Arduinos? What's that? And then finally gave in when it came to creating an adapter for keyboards to do some custom keyboard layouts and then got hooked with, again, those LED strips and some of this other stuff. I was like, okay, now we can have some fun because now I can play with it. But I'm like, I'm still in this weird world of I want to do it. And some of that stuff is just figuring out that integration of like, how do I hook these up and put a central gateway to do small home Internet of Things devices and make sure that I can actually have a maintainable solution instead of having to jump around every single time I want to update the software kind of thing. Right. And just reload it and template stuff out. So I can see the appeal of having some of these friendlier languages, because if you do this as a side project, even you're like, I don't want to spend a ton of time working on this because this is a side project. I'd rather get it working and then tweak it and play with it than spend a bunch of hours trying to get it to work and just start from there. So so I've become one of the developers and maintainers of one of the popular libraries for doing the LED lights. So the fast LED library is one of the popular ones for doing. It has lots of like color mixing and patterns and stuff like that. So it's really nice. It gives you a pretty high level interface to the LED strips. But I still notice like on the Google Plus group where we discuss the library, people will get on there and they'll be like, all I'm trying to do is make the light go back and forth like it's Knight Rider or something like that. And, you know, that's so painful for somebody who has not done C++ programming. And, you know, we're helping people with just like how to construct the loop that does that. And I feel bad. Like, why can't we offer them something better than that? And something better than that, too, is coming from my side with the limited hardware stuff is I'm spending enough time trying to figure out if the hardware is working. I don't want to try and remember, am I remembering my C++ C++ stuff right? And is this an error in the software because it's been so long and I'm forgetting something? Or is this a hardware problem? And being able to have that something a little bit more familiar sounds really interesting to say, no, 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 I'm pretty sure the software's right. Now it must be a hardware thing. So how did it come from your experience of working with Arduino's figuring out there's got to be a better way. You worked on this library for the LEDs to help that, but then tying in with Caleb where it became, let's write a language which can actually get compiled down to be what we want to do, and that becomes friendlier. Before Caleb jumps in, let me just describe one other pain point, and then Caleb can explain like where, where we went from there. So one of the other pain points here is... If you look at things like sensors and actuators, so a great example is a really easy sketch to write is a light that blinks. If you want to change that to a button that turns on a light that blinks or turns off a light that blinks, you get into a much more complicated kind of programming that almost looks sort of like concurrency, where what you're doing is saying, like, when I get this signal, record the current time. And then when 50 milliseconds have elapsed, like do something else. And you end up with these very, very complicated sort of event processing loops. So if you've had to build anything that has multiple sensors and multiple actuators, you've seen this kind of thing. It basically ends up like you end up writing a sort of discrete event simulator from scratch in C++. It's terrible. So that was really the specific pain point that we were looking at is like you've got lots of signals coming through a program and at the C++ level 
it just doesn't give you the right tools to handle those. Yeah. So if you look at like the very simple Hello World Arduino programs, they use the blinking light example. The code is usually turn the light on, sleep for like a second, turn the light off, sleep for a second. And the big problem is that, like Sam said, when you want to use multiple devices, multiple outputs, multiple inputs, you can't be sleeping because, you know, you might be waiting on something else to happen. So you have to jettison that sort of sleeping style and move towards the time scheduling stuff. And what we've done with Juniper is actually hide all of the time scheduling stuff underneath uh, higher order functions. And in combination with a signal graph, that's how the higher level abstraction works, where the time scheduling is hidden from the programmer, and they can use a sort of high level representation to reason about their code. Right. So I think maybe, and you can speak to this yeah. a lot more than I can, but really the, I think kind of the key idea is that a signal becomes a first class entity in the language. And you can say, this is how signals propagate and at what rate and how they're sort of combined and propagated. And if you talk about these programs in plain English, you often use the word signal, which is funny because you're like, okay, wait for a signal from this button and then, you know, turn the LED on or off. So we can map that to a construction of language it becomes very natural. Yeah, I was laughing along. I was on mute, but I was laughing along as you described the going from a simple loop to the the concurrency side. And I've had conversations with another coworker who's played with Arduinos. And there is the idea of not sleeping. And can I essentially do a background sleep with an interrupt that wakes me from sleep so I can just keep low power mode? And so as you're describing all these pain points, I'm just picturing some of the code that I had to try and A, research and remember how to do that stuff. and B what it wound up looking like and it's like okay well here's the loop with these events but there's also a state machine inherently built in because i need to know what state i'm in right right then i have a state machine and then it's like okay well now and which states can i transfer to and what signals can i accept or reject based off what state i'm in and part of me is like there's got to be a better way because yeah we got a limit on memory but there's also that how much can we do? So I guess when you started with Juniper, you found all these pain points. How did you first go about thinking about these? You said signals was one of the things people talked about, but how did it wind up becoming to be? You had all these pain points. Was this just a, I want to do a language or how? what was this? We were trying to figure out if we want to make a library or a language, like what would the language look like? Was it be even possible to run functional programs on such a small device? And for a while, the big question for me was, how do we represent the signal graph in such a tight space? And when I say signal graph, I mean that we have nodes in this directed graph, and the nodes process inputs on it that are coming in from a signal, do something to them, and then have an output signal. And there's a number of different representations for signal graphs. If you look at other programming languages, and not just programming languages, but libraries as well. Some programming languages that, I, that I've looked at in the past for programming embedded systems have the signal graph specified completely at compile time. You're explicitly constructing the signal graph. The compiler understands the signal graph, and it basically generates all the inputs and output code handling for you. But I wanted something that looked a little bit more like Elm, which handles its signal graph a little bit differently. And at least in the older versions of Elm, 
which is the one that I was looking at, the signal graph is actually constructed at runtime. So when the program starts, a signal graph is constructed in memory and values are propagated through that signal graph over time. And this was a big problem because that signal graph takes memory. So we're kind of limited on memory as well. And like, where do we put the signal graph exactly? There were all these questions and I, I didn't really think it was, it would be possible to have the signal graph stored in memory. But I mean, this took like a few months, but I eventually realized that we can actually represent the signal graph implicitly in the call graph of the program. And the way you think about it is if you look at a, sig at a signal at any one specific point in time, it either has a value in it or it does not. And that sounds a lot like a maybe type from Haskell. So what's actually happening underneath the covers in Juniper is we represent signals as maybe values. And the signal type itself is just a maybe type, but it is used sort of in a different way than maybe types are used maybe in Haskell and stuff like that. And what happens is you end up with these functions that look like a lot like Elm had, like you have like the the signal mapping functions or the full P functions that sort of do the same thing. And uh, it was just a really nice representation. And as soon as I thought of that, I'm like, this has to be the right answer. And so I started coding the compiler after that. And are these maybe in the fact that these are the on or off kind of things? So the signal's on or the signal's off, or are these other maybes that are more general, and some of them are on-state, off-state signals. Some of these are the range of values. So if the sensor reads between 0 and 100, you get a maybe of I either got a reading or I got a reading with this number. Is that kind of how you built it up? So the signal your reading just gets wrapped in a maybe then? Yeah, so like let's take an example of like a button press, for example. If you do like an analog read on a button, that's sort of like a floating point value. And when you detect a button press, you're transforming that into a digital value. And so what happens is you have this input signal of that holds floating point values, and you sort of have this filter where if a certain threshold is reached, you pass some value. And if the threshold is not reached, you pass none which represents that the signal does not have a value traveling along it in that time interval. So the signal graph being sort of implicit in the in the control flow of the program. And then you mentioned the Elm architecture, and you mentioned some of these reducing concepts. So is everything just essentially it's signal to to another signal, and you're just, I guess, is it a signal graph as there's a bunch of folds that it goes through, or does each one conceptually become almost like a chain of one signal to another, or do you chain some of these things together in the graph? I don't know that I'm asking that well. I'm almost thinking more of a, if a button signal comes in, is that get propagated to a bunch of these different functions? And depending on which function you go through, it winds up another signal, and then that signal just goes back in and gets fed in as a new signal. I mean, it might be helpful to just like back up for a second and talk about the reactive programming model in mm -hmm. general. So there's a whole world of reactive programming that predates the functional version of it, where essentially 
you can think of computations as nodes in a graph. Those computations only fire when input values become available. And this was a common way of thinking about parallel computing for a long time, especially kind of unstructured parallel computing, where it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to multiply a million numbers by 10. Like, that's easy to parallelize. What do you do about highly unstructured parallelism? And one way of thinking about it is like this data flow model. So the units are kind of waiting for values to become available. When they become available, they fire, they do their computation, and then they send their output down the graph to the next node. That model has a sort of built-in notion of concurrency. It takes care of things like time because time is just whatever you get on those signal edges whenever values are available. So you can see, uh, like Caleb's got listed here, some examples. So some of the older ones are really like you are explicitly using functions to construct that graph, and then you're saying go. Now execute the graph. And I think the the big change in the functional reactive programming was to incorporate those concepts directly into the language so that you'd have a function and its inputs would be signals. And what that means is that function only executes whenever those inputs become available and whatever that means. So it added in this kind of reactive time notion right into the language semantics itself. So that's, I think, the sort of essential model here. And one of the tricks we had was that a lot of these existing approaches are very memory intensive and compute intensive. And so one of the big problems that Caleb worked on is, you know, how to compile that down into something that will actually run on an Arduino. Yeah, so the signal graph model in Juniper, it's fundamentally a polling based model. And like Sam was saying, when a value becomes, if a value is not available on a signal, represent that value with none, the none value, which is value constructor for the maybe type. Right. And when a value is available, we represent that with some value or whatever that is. And then the signal type is just a wrapper around the maybe type. And so the signal graph is more of a mental model in the programmer's head while they are typing out the program and isn't actually sort of in the language itself like you would see in like Elm or in some of the other TensorFlow where you're constructing signal graphs as well. So it's a little bit different. Okay. And that was one of the things I was trying to figure out because I've heard a bunch of different definitions of functional reactive. And yep. sometimes people say PubSub can be semi-functional reactive. So a bunch of things that you put it out there and a bunch of things who are subscribers then react to that. If it's at a small level, like these are just the functions that are reacting. Then there's the Unix pipeline kind of thing where this thing gets fed straight through all in one pipeline, but you might have multiple things versus it almost sounds like in this case, it's a polling thing where I guess if you have 10 signals you're listening for through each loop, each thing that needs to do, it runs everything in that loop. And during that one loop, it'll go say, go check this mailbox for this signal. Go check this mailbox. Go look at A. Is there anything in there? Go look at B. Is there anything in there? Okay, now I can run this small little function next step inside the same loop. Is it that kind of how it's 
I think the way I would think about what you just described is that is what Juniper compiles into. So you don't you don't write that. You don't write polling things or whatever. You just write functions that take signals as inputs. And the compiler generates polling and state machines and all that craziness for you. The other thing I would say is that I think one of the key ideas in functional reactive programming is that you can apply higher order functions to these signal graphs so that you can do mapping and folding on signals. And those are things that would be really hard. Like in that loop, you'd have to do this really complicated program to represent that idea. Yeah, and and higher order functions are definitely the key to how Juniper works. I mean, the definition of functional reactive programming is a little bit ambiguous and nobody really has a concrete definition. So I would say that Juniper is actually a functional language where the standard library has many reactive components inside of it. And that makes sense. It sounds like I was conflating the how does it work under the covers as a mental model with the how do I think about this when I code this as a mental model? So I guess from the coding side is it might just be here's a bunch of functions and there is no real main loop at this point, but here's a function A that takes a signal of button one press and button two press and it puts an output to LED light one. And I just have a bunch of, the, is it just a bunch of those functions like that with the mappings and then Juniper helps stitch those together into that check? So there's actually interactions with underlying C++ libraries because we don't want to be reinventing the wheel for every single device. So if you want to use Juniper with a new input device, for instance, you are going to have to call some C++ code and then sort of put that inside of a box, which is a signal, which then can then be consumed by other signal processing functions. Now, for like the standard digital input, digital output, analog and analog out pin devices have things built on the standard library so that you don't have to go down to the C++ code and make the signals yourself. The basic step is write these signal generating functions for every input device or the syncs as well, which are the output devices. And then your main program is just sort of structuring the signals through these higher order functions that the Juniper standard library will map over the signals or fold over the signals and stuff. Maybe one, like a simple example would help here. And maybe you can, Caleb might have to correct my description of it. But like, if you want to have an LED that blinks on and off, what you do is you start by creating a signal that says, every half second, I emit a value. Then that's consumed by a function that says, whenever I get a a value, I toggle the LED. So that notion of like, I'm looping over the LED and turning it on on and off is not really in the program. It's just this idea that here's a signal generator and here's a signal consumer and that's it. And it requires, I think you do have to stand back and think about these things, especially if you've been sort of like up to your neck in event loops and state machines. This requires you to stand back and stop thinking like that. And that can be hard. And that's where I was getting at it. So it sounds like you are just saying, here's a bunch of things that generate signals and Juniper puts that code down. And then you have a bunch of stuff that says, this thing is a signal consumer, which will emit its own signal. 
And then all that just gets stitched together as opposed to doing any other of these. Yeah, and the stitching together is done by your order functions most of the time. So if like an example of a basic higher order function is map. Now, if you look at map on lists, what you're doing is you're looking at each element and mapping each one individually and then putting that back in a new list. And we can sort of analogously do that with signals where if there's a value on that signal, map it. And if there was no value in that signal, we just do nothing. And there's a few other ones that are super useful. There's fold, which sort of has this accumulator cell. And there's the filter one, for instance, as well. So the filter one is pretty easy to understand as well. So it's if there is a value on the signal and it matches this predicate, then return that value as output. Otherwise, emit a none value on the signal. The fold P function is a little bit more complicated because there's state. And at least in Elm, fold P means fold over the past. So we start out with this initial state inside of this ref cell, and we're sort of mutating it using a higher order function where the mutation of the ref cell is done sort of in the background by the Juniper standard library. And this is all starting to make sense from how one would use it versus how it works. And those are both questions that I was intrigued to understand how it's working on both sides. And I can very much see the event nicety of that because playing with keyboards and some of these teensies or even the Arduinos, it's like hold the reset switch down for eight seconds or whatever to get into bootloader mode where I can see like, yeah, okay, button down, eight seconds, button up. Like after eight seconds, if there if this thing didn't get that, then I know that I've had my reset mode and I can now reset. But if I don't fit both those together, instead of actually keeping track of the time myself, it's like, okay, well, okay, what time is it now? Has I gotten up or down? Is very convenient. And the um, other thing is other stuff, other parts of the signal graph can go ahead and keep doing what they're doing while you're waiting to see if eight seconds have passed. So that's the other really nice thing is like you can have multiple signals propagating at the same time with different frequencies, you know, and that's another thing that's like a huge pain in the in the C++ world is that if things are not synchronous with each other, like if you're trying to wait for eight seconds over here, but do something every 50 milliseconds over there, that's a pain. <laughs> Hey, uh, Sam, could you describe the button bouncing problem? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a common one. So, you know, a common problem with physical buttons. I mean, normally you would think if you look at a really simple push button, all it does is connect a pin to ground or connect a pin to a high signal. And so you would think that the way to detect a button is just to read the pin. And if it's high, the button got pushed. And if it's low, it didn't. The problem with that is that when you push the button, if you were to look, if you were to graph the signal over time, initially, as the metal gets really close together, what you actually get is this like jaggy up and down signal, high and low and high and low. And then once the metal is in contact, then it settles at whatever it's going to be. So if you react every time you see high, every button push is going to turn into like 20 button pushes. And the behavior is going to be really weird. So you have to do this thing called debouncing. And so they call that bounce. 
And so debouncing, typically the strategy is when you first see the high signal, you wait a short amount of time, like 20 milliseconds, and then check to see if it's high again. If it's still high after 20 milliseconds, then you can kind of assume, all right, I'm in this like stable zone. Now, the problem is, let's say you're doing something else like blinking a light on and off. You can't just say stop here for 20 milliseconds because that stops everything else that's going on in the program. So here again is where the concept is pretty simple. I can describe it to you. But when you have to sit down in C++ and write that, it's really unpleasant. But if you just view these as separate signal graphs, here's the button signal over here. Here's the LED blinking signal. They always run concurrently. That's just the natural way to describe it. And one of the cool things that we can do with the button signals in Juniper is that you can say, read this digital in pin, and that's a signal, and we can pass it through a debouncing function. And sort of the debouncing behavior is encapsulated entirely within the, the debounce function. So debouncing a button only requires one function call, which is super nice. And it's a reusable, and it's a reusable yeah. component. And I want to get into F-sharp in a minute, but one of the other things I'm wondering about all this concurrency and all this sleeping and wanting things to happen in the background, there's the sleep, and then there's the essentially the hard sleep, which is like a system sleep, right? And does Juniper allow you to take advantage of any of that if you're trying to do some of these Arduinos off battery power or some of these other things where if I'm plugged into a wall and I'm on 5 volts, or whatever, cool, I can not go into a deep sleep, but if I want to just be interrupt-based and essentially have things hooked up to interrupt pins or something, so if this button happens on it, it triggers an interrupt. Does Juniper have a difference on these things that are essentially like a hard sleep unless interrupted and then check, or is this a soft sleep? Is this just a constant loop that's running and it just never shuts down, but it always just keeps pinging for the signal generation or... What does that look like under the covers? Yeah, so the interrupt-based programming definitely helps with power consumption. And that is not something that I had time to look at when I was programming Juniper. So at the present moment, Juniper is entirely polling-based. I think there probably are ways to make it more interrupt-based, but I just haven't gotten around to working with the interrupt stuff yet. And that's for power purposes, you're saying? Yeah, so... You want to sleep to save power. And if you're just pulling over and over and over again, you're consuming power and your battery will run out faster. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Like, in other words, if you have nothing to do for like a very long time. You... Yeah. So the, lo the low power mode was one of the things I was playing with was just the occasional sensors that pull. So I got a, I was playing with some stuff with a temperature sensor. And I was like, if I can get that to run off some of these coin cells or 18650-style rechargeable batteries or even rechargeable double or triple A's, could I essentially, if I only need to read a temperature every five minutes or ten minutes in my house as an experiment, can I sleep that down and put that on a battery and just stick that sensor somewhere and essentially do the system sleep of that Arduino and let it wake up? So that was kind of where that question was coming from. I don't know. I, I don't think either of us have thought much about signals that would be low enough frequency where that would make sense to do. I mean, I think your application may be special in the sense that 
you know, you don't need to check the temperature every 50 milliseconds so that you've got large gaps of time. Most of the applications I think we've looked at are there's something constantly going on. Like if you want to check for a button, you really have to do that pretty frequently to get good response. Most of these microprocessors do have a sleep mode or even a deep sleep mode. It might be interesting to see if there's a way to, like you could look at the compiler, the compiler could look at the signal graph and decide if there's going to be long gaps. I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, you can put sleep statements at the end of the, the polling loop, and that might help a little bit. But yeah, we haven't looked at a whole lot of the interrupt stuff yet. Yeah, and it was just that I was playing with it and I saw some stuff about how do you hack Arduino to consume like five milliamps or something, which would give you insane battery life on a nine volt battery or a couple of 18650s. And so some of that was just, can I do this because I can do this? And I saw the deep sleep mode, so I wasn't sure where that was going. Not that that's a common thing, but that was just more of the, it's there. Can I do it just to know if I can do it? And so that's kind of where I was wondering was where those interrupts play in. We don't have any special support for interrupts, right? No, not not yet. But I think one of the nice things you can see here is that the reactive model would hide explicit interrupts just as part of its programming model. So interrupt handlers are a huge pain, right? You got to deal with all this hardware weirdness and, you know, restrictions on what you can do in the interrupt and how long you can stay there and what happens if more interrupts come in. And the potential here might be to generate some of that code where a signal, we generate an interrupt handler for a specific signal. And, you know, maybe we would deal with all the interrupt handler muckety-muck and the programmer would never see that. Yeah. And my gut says if I were going to play with it, it it would probably be just be, as you said, signal generation that says, okay, I write a C thing that detects the interrupt, and then all I do is just put a signal out there that says this interrupt happened as a flag. Right. I definitely think it can work. And then I do want to get to the fact that you're using F-sharp to do this. What prompted that decision? What was the idea of actually... Picking a functional language and implementing this in a functional reactive language, and then specifically F sharp. Yeah, so I mean, when I was looking at languages to write the Juniper compiler, I was looking primarily at ML based languages. So my options were Pascal, F sharp, and OCaml. Out of those, in a previous class, I had used another programming language called SML more often, which is very similar to F sharp. And so I felt like F-sharp would be a good match. And not only that, but F-sharp also has a very good debugger as well inside Visual Studio. So that was one of the things I was looking at. It wasn't like a huge decision. F-sharp just happened to be the one one I went with. And is that F-sharp for the compiler or is that F-sharp for the parser and compiler? Are you using... When someone writes in Juniper, is that a variation of F-sharp that they're writing in and building just using specific DSL components that you've built up using F-sharp and the syntax that is F-sharp syntax, but you're using a subset? Or are you using F-sharp for the 
language parsing and compiling and everything as well? So one of the things that I looked at when I was starting to write the compiler was that a lot of people use sort of these Haskell DSLs. That's something that I actually didn't want to do just because I felt like it was sort of weird to have your language be dependent on Haskell and not sort of its own separate thing. So what the F-sharp is for is for just the compiler. There is a separate Juniper language that looks a lot like F-sharp, actually, because they're both ML family languages. So the F-sharp compiler uses fparsec for parsing, which is a parser combinator library. And then there's a few different compilation steps where there is a type checker, I have a type inference algorithm, and then the code generator, which generates a single output C++ file, which you then compile and put on your Arduino. That's what I was wondering, because I've seen people go different ways with that, where they write a language and that language is just really a subset of these functions in the parent language and or macros, depending on which language you're playing with. And then there's the ones where you write this in another language. Maybe it looks a lot like your language, but it is a different language. And then you're using your backend language to parse and do the compilation. So that side gives me a good picture of that. And then when it outputs, you said it outputs a C++ or C file. Is that just then part of opening up your Arduino project and loading those files in and then flashing it? Or is there any tooling around the fact that does this help? And maybe what I'm getting at is what is the experience of after you've written the code, we kind of touched on debugging hardware as well. What is that story there of like, okay, I've got this thing. It builds according to the types and it creates this file. What does that look like as I'm working with it and using it and figuring out this isn't quite going right. What is that kind of interaction of the flashing of the Arduino and that little process story like? Because if you're trying to do people who aren't techies and don't need to do C++, what was the story on making that side easier as well? Yeah, so the general workflow is you write a a few different .june files which are their own separate modules, and they can open and include each other and stuff. The Juniper compiler takes Klexella's .june files together, parses all of them, type checks all of them, compiles them to C++, puts it all in a single C++ file. And then you take that C++ file yourself, go to either the Arduino ID or the one that I like, that I prefer, called Platform.io. And from there, you can compile your C++ file and then put it on to the Arduino. And one of the things that I tried to do in Juniper was make sure that there isn't any name mangling with any of the types or function names so that the interaction with C++ would be a little bit more painless. And actually, if you look at the Juniper language, there is an expression denoted by pound signs, where inside those pound signs, you can write any arbitrary C++ code. And that's usually how you hook up with the C++ libraries. And then in your .june modules, you say there's a directive saying, we also have to include this C++ header file in this location. And then in the output generated, in the generated code, it'll, it'll do a little pound include and the C++ compiler will recognize they have to include something here. 
Now, the output of the C++ code is heavily uses C++ templates. And you can actually do a lot of crazy things with C++ templates. I mean, it ended up working well for the parametric polymorphism that Juniper supports. And if you want to look into some even crazier C++ templates, you can make C++ template templates, which are essentially higher kinded templates. I don't know. You can do some really crazy things. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'm taking a look at implanting that stuff. Right now, the compiler does use type inference. And one of the features that I wanted to add was type classes to make sort of the arithmetic operations a little bit more intuitive. So that's a feature that I'm looking to add at some point. And you hit the next question I was going to be asking is, you mentioned having to write your own signals. So this is not necessarily a C++ file you include on the side, but you're essentially doing the C++ inline and taking care of those includes. So I don't necessarily need to have another main program. What gets generated is the main program, and that includes all the header include statements, any preprocess other processor statements. And it's just up to me to say, if I'm using a RF24 DHT11, just to name a couple that I know the names of, because uh, those are what I was playing with, is I still need to include those libraries in my project, but you've taken care of the include statements. I put that in line in Jupyter that says, here's how you read this and turn this into a signal. And so then that's all bundled then. Yep. The goal was for the programmer to just take the C++ file. They won't even have to look at it and just push the compile button and it would hopefully work. There are problems occasionally, but dealing with those, uh, most of the time it just, it, uh, the C++ will code will compile. If there is a problem with the C++ code, since we don't do a whole lot of name mangling, it's usually pretty easy to figure out where the problem is. And then you mentioned when we were talking before the, we started the recording portion, we were talking about the debugging hardware is kind of a pain because pretty much all you have is maybe you've got the serial line that you're connecting through through your computer with a USB serial cable, or you got a blinky, flashy light. Is it the types that help reduce some of that overhead and making sure that your code is right and determining the dividing line between debugging what's the software issue and what's an actual hardware wiring hookup issue? I think when you when you program in a functional programming language, it just always comes out perfect the first time. It's funny that you mentioned that, Sam, because <laughs> the project that we discussed in the paper, the digital hourglass, I wrote the entire program push the compile button and it worked the first time. That's pretty cool. And it's and it took I wrote in C++ and it took me like weeks to get it working the way I wanted. <laughs> We're not saying that it's going to do that every time. And there's no magical debugging solution that we can add. So we're still kind of stuck with print statements and trying to yeah. figure out what's going on. However, I mean it might be possible though to write like if you write a dynamic semantics for Juniper you mm -hmm. could probably write an interpreter that would let you simulate a Juniper program on a regular computer. We could and that do might that, be yeah. Helpful. Yeah, there's, I mean, that would be more work, but yeah, we could definitely do I mean, that. The problem, actually, the real problem would be the, like, C++ bindings to the libraries. But yeah. in principle, you could debug the signal graph part of it. Yeah, um, totally doable. But I think, again, like, when I think of 
when I think about the problems I've had with Arduino programs, a lot of them boil down to timing problems. And so a lot of those are, are abstracted away here. Yeah, and it's abstracted by the higher order functions in combination with the ref cells, which hide the timing information under the hood. And again, it does sound like it would help eliminate huge swaths of the kind of mistakes that I've noticed I've right when I try and play with the Arduino stuff. But I wasn't sure if that's just something that says, based off the way these signals propagate, we've actually been able to abstract this stuff out enough that says signal A, signal B, and we can validate that. And the types generally cover the fact that you're getting the signal in, the signal out, and it's small enough that it's easy enough to debug versus something else. And it's like, if I need to know, did I get that signal? That's another signal handler, I guess, that would just say, write to console if I got the signal and the signal value. But that's why I was wondering if there was anything specific that you were noticing that actually helped with the debugging besides just the stepping away from having to do all that concurrency yourself. I haven't done a whole lot with debugging, mostly because the one project that I worked on so far was Digital Hourglass. I have a couple other projects. There are print functions in the Juniper library that can do some printing, but I haven't had to deal a lot with debugging stuff, so I'm not quite sure what that workflow looks like yet. It seems to me there's another opportunity here, which is when we're emitting code, C++ code, in the code generation phase, there might be a flag that you add that says, add a bunch of serial line logging Yeah, that says, here's what's going on in the signal graph. I mean, I think that's one of the nice things about the compiler approach to this problem is you could have a switch that turns that on and it's not like you have to fill up your program with if debug is true, then print this stuff, which often makes programs yucky to look at. Yeah, I think that there's totally a potential for some cool debugging tools. We could make tools that automatically extract signal graph and show like a debugging view or something with a graphical representation on the PC. That'd be cool. That would be really cool. <laughs> log. That'd be really interesting. So log all of the signals that happen using the serial output, then reconstruct that after the fact. Yeah. And take that log and sort of replay it. You can see what happens. Yeah. I wonder actually also, Caleb, I don't know if you've thought about this, whether there are kind of functional reactive programming specific kinds of bugs that happen. So bugs where you created some weirdness in the signal graph and now the whole thing locks up for some reason. Uh, or I don't know what. About. I don't know. I can't think of anything really off the top of my head. Okay. I was just imagining maybe some program analysis that you could do ahead of time to try to. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of potential for interesting debugging tools. And this leads us to what I want to wrap up about Juniper with is we're kind of in that area of where it is because we're talking about some of the stuff that hasn't been thought about yet, hasn't been touched yet, but has potential for. Do you want to just leave us with a little bit of where Juniper is at its current state and then maybe a little bit of where you see it going and how people can get started and help with if they find there's certain things that they want to help contribute 
kind of just what's the lay of the land looking for juniper for people to come up, start using this, start pushing against the bounds so they know where those bounds are and maybe be able to figure out I could actually help push this boundary out further by contributing to the project. Yeah, so Juniper is still sort of in an experimental stage, and there are a number of features that I need to see added that would definitely help the language. The biggest one is type classes. The second one is some sort of better inference for records. And if you look at Haskell, also has problems with records. There's another feature I want to add, which we haven't touched on really, which is constricting memory consumption by using type-level natural numbers. So like if you want to have a fixed-size list, you want to have this natural number on the type level to fix the amount of memory. Representing those are kind of painful right now. There are a handful of other features that need to be added and also some features that I want to remove. I think one of the mistakes in the original language was actually having closures it's too easy to end up with a situation where you allocate a closure on the heap, which is basically disastrous in embedded system programming. And so those are the things I want to see. And I think right now the, the parser is pretty solid. The C++ output is pretty solid. And the place where we kind of need some more work and help is on the type checker and adding features to the type checker like the type classes that I mentioned, record enhancements, and then more testing and bug fixes and stuff like that. Okay, that sounds good, because it's knowing that richness. And I didn't know if there's other libraries that people could help add and contribute to for other kinds of sensors, if there was a place to contribute those, if there's a common set of sensors that people are working on. It's like, well, I wrote this other thing that can generate a signal for you for something else versus the actual core language versus the larger ecosystem. So if people are curious and they want to either take something that you mentioned because they're interested in looking at higher kind of types or type classes or some of this other stuff, or they want to contribute some other way or play with it, what are the best ways to people get started, find out more, figure out where to look for help and get other resources about it? Yeah, so... One of the huge problems that I've had is that people who are doing embedded systems don't come in with an understanding of functional programming. And I don't have the resources to, you know, make a full huge set of tutorials on learning functional programming, which is sort of this prerequisite for learning Juniper. So there's not like a whole lot of people that are in the intersection of people who do embedded systems work and do functional programming. But the best way to get started is have a good background in functional programming and take a look at the Hello World example, which was the blinking LEDs. I think there is a tutorial on the Juniper website. And then there is a language description doc, which lists out the basic language features, or all of the language features. And Juniper actually looks, syntax is very, very similar to F-sharp. So if you're familiar with that, it should not be too big of a jump. And this is generally functional programming, so you may have some people reaching out to you that have the functional programming background and might be doing embedded systems or in that same kind of view that I am, where it's like, can I find that functional programming language and is this going to be it? So you might have some people coming in with that functional background because there may be a small subset of this that actually 
is interested in embedding and has that functional background, at least. So that was kind of where I was wondering how these people come and get started with this. If they've kind of got that functional background and that embedded background, what you'd be looking for to come in and help. I think the other piece you need is you do have to look a little bit at the reactive programming model. Because even if you know embedded systems and functional programming, you have to think a little bit about how the signal-based model, how you're going to translate your problem into that signal-based model. I think, yeah. would you agree? that That's like a, another piece, I think, to kind of wrap your brain around. Yep. And uh, if you have any questions or if you just are interested in getting started, there is a Google group that is on the Juniper website. So feel free to comment there. And I will help you out, help you get started if you have any questions or anything. Okay, and I'll put those links in the show notes so people can find that and come back and make sure they're asking the questions in the right spots. But where can people find you online and follow along with, A, the status of Juniper, B, the status of anything else you two are doing and might be pushing the bounds with in the future? My big side project that I'm working on right now has been a video game, which I've been working on for the past five years, called Blockspell. It has its own website, blockspell.com. Otherwise, I also have a blog, which is calebh.io, and I have a couple posts on there. But yeah, otherwise, follow me on Twitter or Sam. My web presence isn't quite as modernized. I spend probably my side presence recently has been mostly on the Fast LED Google group where people go to discuss specifically these RGB LEDs and library support for those. That's probably where you'll find me listening and answering questions. Okay, I'll make sure to get those in the show notes. So if people are wanting to start out with the LED stuff, that sounds like a good place to start out with. It is, yeah. Because I've heard a number of people say Blinky and LEDs are essentially the hello worlds of embedded systems to make sure you can actually just get something working. Yeah. And get that response. So I'm sure that fast LED might be the first place for people who aren't necessarily embedded or hardware programmers or played with that at, at all and then move on to Juniper. I think the other thing is about fast LED is that so there's a pretty big community that helps everybody from brand newbies who haven't done anything to people who are building like professional installations. You'll see it all on that same Google group. And I think one of the nice things is that these LED strips let you get a lot of mileage, even with your very first programs. You can download their demos and they are really cool. So it's it's a great way to get started because you'll see like amazing things right away. Yeah, and I'll make sure to get those in the show notes so people can find that out and have that nice quick win that they can feel before they start feeling the constant dejection of, did I solder this thing together right? Exactly. I'm trying to do something complicated and, oh, did I just short two wires because I soldered them wrong or something? Yep. Well, I'll get all those links in the show notes. And thank you both for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure getting to talk a little bit more about the embedded systems and seeing the way people are looking at different approaches to these because when I played with it, as I said, I can do the C++. It's not necessarily the go-to language that I want to necessarily pick up with. And I might be overcomplicating it as well, trying to do some of this concurrency stuff. But knowing that there's some other options out there gives a nice story. And I'm definitely looking forward to the 
evolution of Jupiter as it comes along, and we'll probably pick it up for one of these small little Arduino things I'll be playing with at some point in the future as well. So thank you both for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.